0: Hello everyone and welcome back to Astrology Now podcast. My name is Christine Rodriguez, and in this segment, back by popular demand, we are interviewing Ryan Kurzak. Ryan has been on the show a few times before, and every single time he comes on, we get such amazing feedback and interest. And so today I was so excited to have the opportunity to talk to Ryan about the yugas. And so yugas are periods of time that have an impact on collective consciousness. And depending on the period of time that we're moving through as a collective, it has an impact on, again, our consciousness, what we're focusing on, what the priorities are, and most importantly, what our association to dharma is and so some of you may have heard of you before some of you may be newer to the concept but regardless this podcast really supports us in understanding where we are collectively what the limitations are what the benefits are and most importantly how we can operate more effectively in the world and connect more deeply to dharma ryan is the creator of asheville vedic astrology he created the school asheville vedic astrology apprenticeship program which is a robust and extensive training in vedic astrology he's also a talented writer he's written the art and science of vedic astrology one and two which has so much amazing insight so that's a little bit on ryan if you're interested in his website books or school i have them all linked in the descriptions be sure to explore and give this podcast a rating if you enjoy it. Other than that, sit back with a cup of tea and enjoy this amazing conversation. All right. Well, welcome back, Ryan Kurzak. I've been looking forward to seeing you again and having this interview.
1: Yeah, it's good to see you. I've been looking forward to it as well.
0: Yeah. And I actually recently I came down with COVID and I asked you, I was like, hey, is it okay if we re-want rerun one of our segments together and you said yes and so i went ahead and published it again and i had so many people get so excited because they thought it was new content and i was like i guess (laughs) i'm gonna have to get ryan back on the show so that i don't disappoint and so i was really glad that we could get together and and talk about amazing amazing topics and i know that previously you've been on the show and we talked about astrology Mm -hmm. and this time we decided to talk about the yugas yes And so many people are unaware of what the yugas are. They may have heard of of Kali Yuga um, in passing that I feel like that that's kind of like a trendy term that gets thrown around. People kind of know it, but they may not have a deeper level of understanding. And this is something that you've done extensive research on and have profound understanding of. And so I'm just really excited to share this information with the audience and also learn myself more about the yugas and the cycles of time.
1: Yeah. Well, I'm happy to to talk about it. It's one of my favorite topics. So anything, anything you want to know, I'm happy to share what I might have learned in the past.
0: Okay. Well, before we were hopping on, you shared that they are the great cycles of time and that they influence human consciousness. Right. And can you say a little bit more about that of what the yugas are?
1: Sure. So the yugas, um, they are the periods of time that humanity goes through and they're divided into um, four separate stages. Um, and there's different ways of looking at it. I tend to focus on um, the 24 to 26,000 year cycle that Sri Yukteswar discussed. And um, that is related to the movement of our solar system uh, closer to the center of the galaxy and then away from the center of the galaxy. And so it's said to take between 24 to 26,000 years. And when you divide that up, you get these uh, different segments such as the Kali Yuga, which many people have heard of, the Dwapara Yuga, the Treta Yuga, and the Satya Yuga. And these four time periods represent the general quality of collective human consciousness. So for example, when we think of Kali Yuga, that's the time when our solar system and thereby our planet is as far away from the galactic center as it's going to get in that kind of movement that it does. And when it's further away from the galactic center, that's when human consciousness is at its lowest. It's said that the uh, the bull of Dharma stands on one leg. And that's usually when people are simply interested in uh, money, sex, and power. I and mean, that's about it, because it's very base. And then as we get closer to the, um, the galactic center, we move from Kali Yuga into Dwapara Yuga. And Dwapara Yuga, that's when human consciousness begins to wake up a little bit. They say that the bull of Dharma stands on two legs. We become a little more um, uh, person-centered rather than herd-centered. Um, we discover electricity the use of technology. And then we continue on into the Silver Age, the Treti Yuga. And they say that during that cycle, we're getting closer to the galactic center. The ideas of, say, like telepathy or um, really uh, subtle aspects of of, uh, energetic science and even energy healing, that's more prevalent. And then as we get to Satya Yuga, that's when our solar system is as close to the galactic center as it's going to get. And that's considered to be the age of truth, Satya, uh, the age of enlightenment, when most of human consciousness understands what's taught say in the yoga sutras or the bhagavad Gita, or these uh, spiritual texts so we go on the cycle where we go up closer to the galactic center we become more enlightened i guess as a collective and then there's also a descending cycle where we move away from it Um, and each of those cycles up and down uh holds a little uh segment of these four these four stages
0: yeah, that's pretty amazing. And so, can you remind us how long each of the cycle, each of the cycles are?
1: Yeah. So when we're looking at the um, the length of the cycles, um, they are not equal. So, for example, if we were looking at um, Kali Yuga, well, the previous Kali Yuga started around seven hundred BC and then it ended in 1700 AD. So that's gonna give us around a thousand years to play with. That's like the very bottom of the cycle. And then as we move into Papara Yuga, which begun 1700 AD, that goes into 4100 AD. So we see that it gets longer, and as we get into the Silver Age from 4100 AD to 7700 AD, and then finally, when we get to the Satya Yuga, it's from 7700 AD, to 12,500 AD. So the important thing about it is that we can see that the Kali Yuga is actually the shortest of them all. And Mm -hmm. as we move into these higher, uh, these higher Yugas, they're actually much longer. So, and it's of course the same way as we go down too.
0: Yeah, that is so fascinating. And something that you said was really interesting was that the bull of Dharma stands on one leg during Kali Yuga. And some people who are listening, they may have kind of like a rough idea of what Dharma is. Can we talk a little bit about, about what Dharma is?
1: Sure. Sure. Yeah. Um, so the idea of Dharma, uh, we have to be careful when we talk about this, because it can kind of get a little, um, what's the word it can sound a little dogmatic and I don't really want to go there. Uh, but but dharma is really, in a sense, being appropriate to life and being appropriate to the world and our spiritual development. So the, the, the whole purpose of being human is to kind of grow through the stage of humanity so that we can experience higher states of consciousness. That's why we're here. So when we're in Kali Yuga and we only stand the bull only stands on one leg. Well, imagine a bull trying to stand on one leg. It it can't really do it. It can hold itself up a little bit. It can move itself around a little bit, but it doesn't have the support of the other three legs. So humanity tends to not necessarily quite get what dharma or what the purpose of being human is all about. And as we go through the yugas and uh, the bull gets its legs, I suppose... As we get to the Satya Yuga, well, now we have a bull on all four legs, which means it's absolutely fully capable. Which means when a human exists in Satya Yuga, they understand really uh, the deepest spiritual truths. They understand the sacredness of their body, of their life. They understand how to take care of others, how to be kind to others. They understand good boundaries. Anything that you can think of as being really profoundly psychologically healthy, but also wise, meaning uh, I recently saw a video of um, a young girl and um, she was crying because it was autumn, it was fall. And she kept seeing the leaves fall. And every time a leaf fell, she was just heartbroken because she thought something horrible was happening. And the dad was trying to tell the, the child, it's natural, you know, this is just nature. And the girl was, oh, that's all my fault you know i'm so sorry (laughs) and she's crying and so you know in that when i saw that what it reminded me of is kind of how we approach life you know when things change when things are lost we act like the girl who's watching every leaf fall when that's natural to trees losing their leaves just like for us going through life people coming into our life things changing that's natural so as we being being engaged in dharma would also have that wisdom of knowing what to let go of, when to let go of it. And also that becomes easier because spiritually speaking, we know that we are not the things of the world. We are uh, that eternal witness, that seer, or the the, the eternal spirit. So when I think of Dharma, it's really about understanding and living um, from that place where you are psychologically well, healthy, and wise, and, and able to interact appropriately with the realities of the world physically and spiritually and emotionally so um that's probably a little more than you wanted for that
0: no i think it was perfect thank you so much for sharing and um something that comes up for me as well in addition to that is just how we treat other beings you know mm-hmm. and being able to see the world beyond ourselves and um i i think in kali yuga one of the hallmarks i'm interested in talking to you about this is our willingness to exploit Mm -hmm. and take the lives of other beings and other things for granted and just how we, um, interact with the world and use our resources and use people and other, you know, creatures, whatever. But I think that there, there's just, um, there's more sanctity when, when we're acting from a place of Dharma and, and so in Kali Yuga, because the, the bull of Dharma is standing on one leg, all of the amazing attributes that you just described, they're more challenging to access. Is that true?
1: Uh, I would agree with that. And uh, you know, one thing to keep in mind is that you know, in Kali Yuga, this is the way we have to approach things. In Kali Yuga, we have to say, practice satya, practice truthfulness. We have to tell people, practice harmlessness. We have to tell them that. And this is really the role of religion. This is why uh, many religions that we've encountered um, are really based in a Kali Yuga mentality, because you have to tell people what to do so that they're following you know, this idea of Dharma. But what, what people find, especially when they engage in practices like um, yoga and meditation, or they start actively engaging the yamas and niyamas from yoga, is that you come to a point where you don't have to tell yourself to be kind to others. You don't have to tell yourself to tell the truth. You don't have to follow a dogma to say, don't hurt others because you've, you've, you've evolved into, I guess, the next stage of your own consciousness. And that, that's important to remember is that while there are these Yugas, that really we have our own inner Yuga. And through the, through the cultivation of yoga and meditation, we grow into say a Dwapara Yuga mentality or treta Yuga mentality. Wow. So, so as we think about that, yes, in Kali Yuga, it is harder. Um, and we often need the dogma, even if we don't want to do it, you know, we need the dogma to guide us because otherwise we'll get off track. But as we grow and as we mature, we don't need that anymore because we ourselves become like a a Dwapara Yuga being or a treta Yuga being or a golden age being, which is what the, the enlightened individuals of the planet are. They, they incarnated during a global Kali Yuga, we'll say, but their own consciousness is of a different Yuga. Um, And we we are all meant to kind of figure that out and and do that on our own, no matter what yuga we're in.
0: Wow. That's so powerful. Thank you so much. I really love this idea of us having our internal yuga stages. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I think that it's really, I think that it's really uplifting because one of the questions that I had for you is that we're in Kali Yuga is this time of disillusionment and confusion and finding truth is more difficult. And again, I definitely want to dive into this a little bit more deeply with you, but um, one of my questions was going to be, it's like, well, some folks may be wondering like, why even try? And I think that the answer is that there's still so much evolution that can happen for us on an individual level, but do you have anything else to add to that? I saw a response.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's really important to remember because when I when i teach about the yugas for many years people would ask me w- w- what does it matter like w- what's the point of knowing this like w- why 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 should i care and uh it occurred to me the reason we need to care is because it allows us to be very realistic about the culture in which we are engaged in so for example we ourselves might be practicing meditation and the yamas and the niyamas and uh, having a, a profound spirituality what many people do when they begin that path is they, they take it very seriously and they themselves become more conscious, but then they look around the world and say, well, no one else is doing this. So, you know, why do I keep trying? And when you know what yoga you are in, then you understand how to interact with the consciousness around you. And you don't expect it to be what it's not. So number one, it's good to know what yoga you're in. So that way, as you grow, You don't get frustrated saying, well, this person's acting that way. You just know, oh, well, I just happen to exist in Kali Yuga. So uh, I have to respond appropriately to that person. Um, On another note, uh, it's important to keep this in mind because another person might ask, well, why did I incarnate during this difficult time? Well, this this is what's so important about this whole idea you and this is a theory remember so please keep in mind that when i talk about things like this um, i see them as models that help us understand something i don't see them as actualities. so this is a model to help us understand uh, a situation um, we incarnate into the time period that our consciousness resonates with so for example us being born at the beginning of Dwapara yuga that means that our consciousness, when we were born, what our birth chart represents is that we have the karma, that our state of consciousness resonates with the energies of Dwapara Yuga, and sort of coming out of Kali Yuga. And the reason it's important to realize that this is a very personal evolution is because the progress you make in this lifetime to embody more dwapara Yuga or more Tretta Yuga, Silver Age mentality, or, or even the Enlightenment mentality, wherever you finish up this lifetime, uh, using the theory of reincarnation, you're not going to come back to this time period because you will have done the work that now you resonate with, say, uh, a treta Yuga, Silver Age ideal, or you resonate with a Satya Yuga ideal. So when you pop back out of consciousness, you're going to pop back out wherever you're consciousness resonates with. And if you developed a Satya Yuga consciousness, that's where you're going to incarnate next time. And so Mm -hmm. that's why where you are, it's important to say, it's like, you know, dealing with someone with a lot of psychological issues, or maybe an addiction, they have to admit where they are, they have to admit what they've done, you know, what their difficulties are, because only when they know where they are, can they actually make progress to rise Uh, rise in consciousness or rise in clarity. And, and that's, that's really the important part of all of this.
0: Wow. That's so powerful to think about. And something where like the place that my mind goes is going to be very evolved teachers. Like I'm listening to you talk and I'm like, Oh, well, my teacher doesn't seem like he would be (laughs) like, I start kind of like, going to that place or I think about like enlightened beings if people are open to the concept of enlightened beings and I've heard before that highly evolved souls will t- will sometimes incarnate during times to act as beacons of Dharma do you agree with that or what do you think?
1: Well with the idea of the Yugas um, while we talk about say the Dark Age Kali Yuga where the majority of human consciousness is in that dark age mentality well even in the dark age mentality we are going to get one or two people, who represent Satya Yuga mentality, a few more people that represent uh, silver age mentality, a few more people that represent Dwapara Yuga mentality. Just like when we get into the Satya Yuga, the age of enlightenment, while the majority of human consciousness is going to be of the level of Satya Yuga, there will still be one or two people who manifest the Kali Yuga mentality. So it's really on a spectrum. So, you know, these are sort of mind boggling things to, to, to comprehend. Um, And it is important to recognize that there needs to be, like you said, some kind of beacon there uh, so that the possibility for those individuals who want to and are inspired to rise above the current yuga that they're in have that capacity to do it. So, again, if we're thinking about Kali Yuga. Well, Kali Yuga, majority of human consciousness, dull, dark, all they care about is suing other people and taking this and that and ruling over this and that. Well, within that mass of consciousness, there's going to be maybe a hundred people who look around and say, there's got to be more than this. And so, of course, there's going to be one or two teachers that show up for those hundred. And and it just kind of goes that way as, as time goes on. So, yeah, it's important to think about that.
0: Yeah, thank you. And something that came to me while you were talking is just the concept of duality and how there is never going to be just like one rigid, like in You Yuga, it's not that every single person is going to have this enlightened state. There's still going to be that existence of illusion and the existence of uh, maybe, I mean, for lack of better terms, this is a term that gets thrown a lot in my community in my community, but like demoniac nature, right? (laughs) Like it's still going to be a part of existence because we live in a dual reality. Um, And so I am interested, we're living in this time where it's illusionary and connecting with Dharma is a little bit more challenging. And as you were mentioning earlier, there can be beacons of, of different sorts. How can we know that the teachers that we're coming into contact with or the messages that we're coming into contact with are truth. Like, how can we know that?
1: Well, that's really hard. And that's hard because, you know, when you really need something, when you really want to get better or wake up, usually it means that you don't really have that compass yet yourself. Um, And so my sense is the way a person can really know if they're working with someone is for themselves to first become as psychologically healthy as they can be. So, and and this is when I teach Kriya Yoga, that's the the very first thing that I I get into with individuals using the yamas and niyamas, the first two limbs of yoga. You know, those those first two limbs of yoga, um, harmlessness, truthfulness, non-stealing, purity, and so on. When we are psychologically healthy, we will naturally do those things, and so whatever we can do to prepare ourselves by becoming psychologically healthy, by understanding the value of that, what that does is it gives us discernment. Because if you think about it, um, there are there are many people who get in very difficult relationships where they're taken advantage of. Why is that? It's because oftentimes they don't have good boundaries. They they give away their power to other people, and you have to ask yourself would a psychologically healthy person really do that? And also, since satya is one of the main, uh, most important principles of um, uh, the yamas and niyamas, when you cultivate satya, sat, and you get in that, that stream of truthfulness, being truthful, telling the truth, knowing what truth feels like, like that is one of the prime ones. Then when you meet someone, it's like you have a bullshit meter immediately. You can feel it, you know Nope, I should probably. It doesn't matter how good they look, how popular they are. You can see it immediately. This is not the way to go. So, cultivating the yamas and niyamas, cultivating um, uh, psychological well being, what that does is it makes the individual able to know what is uplifting to life. And then they're able to recognize it. Now, of course, we're all going to make mistakes. So, we might make a mistake, but if we can pull back and learn from it, and appreciate the the lesson, then we can move on and, and maybe find the next person that might be helpful. Because oftentimes we have to do that. We start with one teacher, we get what we can from them, but then we realize, well, I don't know, because you yourself might outgrow that teacher. And then you look around and you find another. Now, I don't like to recommend jumping from one teacher to the next, but the reason I give it as a possibility is because it is hard to find a sincere teacher. <laughs> and, and that's, that's something that we really have to just accept as a reality and, and do our best with.
0: <laughs> yeah. Do you want to share some red flags for teachers? <laughs> red
1: flags. You know, that's a hard one for me because i um, I'll, 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 I'll t- I can say a few things. Um, myself, when I met my Kriya Yoga teacher, um, Roy Jean Davis, that's his, picture back there. Uh, He's a student of Paramahansa Yogananda. And I met him when I was uh, 20 years old. So I met him, he was the first teacher I ever met. And um, I have to admit that when I first became involved in all of this, I was not of a culture that understood the idea of gurus and traditions. All I knew was meditation and I wanted to learn meditation. I grew up in West Virginia. So I thought I just need to find someone to teach me this stuff. And so I didn't have that overwhelming sense of I need to find my guru. It just so happened, I found him. And then over the years, I learned what it meant to participate in that kind of relationship. And so with him, what was so important was that he was always direct to the point, and he never wasted any time. He never, uh, he never, to many people, he seemed cold and aloof, I think, because he didn't want to engage their personality. He wanted to do whatever it took to help them wake up. And I, me that's what i wanted i i didn't i didn't care but i didn't need a new father figure you know i didn't need these kinds of things i just wanted to know what 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 is really essential to wake up and so he always played that role for me and even in the most difficult times he never made up stories he never said things like well if you just pray harder you know your wife will be saved or if you just do this that will be better he would say things like i wish i could perform miracles and he left it at that. And he would say, Ryan, what you need to do is just remain established in the self no matter what. So he always gave me insights and advice that was very specific to my spiritual development. And he never made up any, um, he, he never made up any, any promises or gave false hopes about things. So that's what I like. That's what I look for in a teacher. Um, he used to encourage me to go see other teachers, like when I lived in Nashville, North Carolina. Um, we would have all kinds of, you know, famous, well-known teachers come through, and I never went to see them because I didn't feel any need to because I already had Mr. Davis, and um, he kept encouraging me to go, and I said, "All right, fine, I'll go." So I went to a few of these teachers, and um, this was what I saw that was really frustrating. Many of these uh, very popular teachers, um, they they were they were really good at talking people in circles meaning I went to one particular uh, event and I was just kind of sitting in the back observing and um, one participant asked a question about meditation and you, I, anyone who's just really been introduced to meditation for a year or so would be able to answer this in a sentence and it would be easy, but this teacher just talked in circles about the being of non-being beyond being. Then you'll find purity beyond purity. And it's just like one loop of something after another. And after five minutes, I'm thinking, what is this guy even talking about? And so maybe I'm just not that <laughs> spiritually advanced, but anyway, um, what is he talking about? And after 15 minutes, 15 minutes of doing this, the person who asked the question said, oh yeah, that's profound. And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> I, said that, I said that's not profound at all. That's just talking you in circles. So the biggest, the biggest thing that I like to encourage people to um, be ca- ca- cautious of is: can a teacher speak to you directly to the point without talking you in circles? That's what I like. Um, again, you know, we're all different. So, but that's my that's one of my my red flags.
0: Okay. Thank you. That's super, super helpful. (laughs) Well, I think it's true. And somebody actually asked this, like before we hopped on, I did a quick Instagram thing and I'm like, I'm interviewing someone. What are your questions on the yugas? And one of the questions was like in this time of Kali Yuga, how can we know that what we're accessing is, is truthfulness. And I think that, um, Coming into contact with teachers who are clear and direct, and something that you mentioned earlier that I thought was really important was not trying to entertain or indulge your ego or personality so much. Right. And I think that that's something that's really popular. You know, it's like all of us really love talking about ourselves and right. <laughs> and and well, having it and that's like totally normal and fine and wonderful in its own way, but you know, something for me in the path of spirituality, when the huge elements of it is remaining detached from this ego persona that we're born into, if we're looking at everything from the lens of reincarnation, this is a moment in time. And we need to use this time to the best of our ability to wake ourselves up for higher stage of consciousness, not necessarily getting attached to the fact that we have long hair and like we, you know, whatever we want to identify as, but, um, I think that's an important thing too and I think that I've been really fortunate to find teachers who um have been good about that and mm-hmm. and not entertaining so much of my ego but but constantly reminding me um to have this element of detachment but still like full immersion of trying to use what I have to support other people.
1: Right. Well, with what you're saying, this is why I think the idea of psychological well-being is so important because Spiritual practice is about recognizing the truth of your nature as spirit. That's what it boils down to. But many people become involved in religion and spirituality because they come from a traumatic background, because they don't have a good connection with a father or mother figure, because they're lonely. And 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 the way that churches in the past have been set up is they're very community-oriented, which is great. I'm not I'm not criticizing that at all. The problem is, is when people think spirituality is about finding a group of like-minded people, where spirituality is about finding uh, the father figure that you don't have. Um, and w- as we become psychologically healthy, we don't need that kind of attachment. And even in the Yoga Sutras, when it starts, and now instruction in yoga, and now it's indicating that there has been there has been a previous preparation before you dive into the yoga sutras. Because if you read about the yoga sutras, there's very little about gurus in there. There's very little about joining a monastic community. There's very little about singing chants together. It's all about going deep into the self. And I, I think it's, it's very important to have your social needs met. And that's why I tell people, if you need a club Go join meetup.com and join, you know, if you like people who hike, people who play pickleball, people who play music, get your social time from social things, and then focus on the spiritual side of things when it's time to do that. So as we become more psychologically healthy, it becomes easier to see that as, um, it becomes easier to see spirituality for what it's really meant to be. Does this make sense Um, what I'm trying to say?
0: Oh, Ryan, it makes so much sense. And, you know, we started off this portion of the conversation with you saying that one of the biggest, um, one of the most important things for you when you're working with people is getting them as psychologically sound as possible. Mm -hmm. And I think in spirituality and in these types of groups, there is. A massive tendency, and I've experienced this myself, to project these types of feelings onto our teacher, of our family, of a mother, of a father. You were saying that. You were like, so many people come to spirituality because they have some type of psychological wound in regards to attachment. Attachment is like the driving force behind our psychology, pretty much. And so, and so it's like when we're entering a spiritual community, it is so natural and people shouldn't blame themselves for this, but it's good to be aware of it. It's so natural to want to attach to our teachers that way. But what happens is it, it, it comes with all of that attachment baggage where suddenly people have power over us and and we lose sight of connection to ourselves. It's possible, right? I'm not Mm -hmm. saying all the time, but it's certainly a possibility. And so I think that what you're saying is really important in that the way that you're approaching spirituality is that the answers lie within it's all about turning inwards to get closer to spirit without necessarily getting distracted by an outside person or identity. Do you feel like that's a good summary?
1: Yeah, and, and you know, it can go another direction and that, yes, we can have this attachment to someone like a guru and a teacher. And, and just to be fair, like, I love my guru as much as any family member I've ever had because of the importance that he has played in my life. But what, what many people, uh, one of the other difficulties is that when you bring in that baggage and that attachment and your guru or your spiritual teacher or even your mentor tries to give you actual good advice, what do you do? you respond like you did to your father or your mother, which you don't get along with. Oh. <laughs> and then you miss the advice and you won't take it. So, you know, it, there's 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 a whole, and the beautiful thing is, you know, going back to the yugas, in Kali Yuga, it was important to have a guru that you went to. And the guru said, you do this, you do that. And the person, the, the sincere devotee said, yes, I will do that. But we're now in Dwapara Yuga. We're just into it, which is why we have this understanding this birth of this understanding of psycho, more psychological well-being and personal responsibility, because in in uh, in Kali Yuga it's more herd mentality. People think more like like mob mentality. That's how they think. That's how they function. They need that parental, patriarchal, matriarchal influence in Kali Yuga. And when we come into Dwapara Yuga, the defining point of Dwapara Yuga is the individual. That's why when the Dwapara Yuga started, we got labor unions. We got people not having to work, you know, hundreds of hours a week. They, they work 40 hours a week now. Now everyone has these phones. I mean, think about it. In Kali Yuga, no one knew what these were, right? Mm-hmm. We're in Dwapara Yuga, which is an age of technology, an age of personal expression. Everyone, even people who live on the poorest salaries, you can imagine probably have access to a phone. Now, mm-hmm. of course just like we were demonstrating, there will be a few who don't because there will still be a few people who haven't fully gotten into the technological age of things. But when we when, when the personality comes up, we have two, two issues there. Number one, we see the people who are just trying to promote their personality for personality's sake. And that's what yes. we see with a lot of social media type things and, and the rise of the, the, the cult of personality. But on the other hand, the, the, the positive side of that is recognizing our personal responsibility, right? And so that's what Dwapara Yuga is all about. That's why when you look around, you see all the selfishness, but you also see the rise of understanding psychological well-being and personal responsibility. They're both there because those are both the polarities of, of Dwapara Yuga. As we get into Treta Yuga, you know, that's when the bull stands on three legs. That's when people, the majority of people, actually understand why it is important to make sacrifices for the greater society, Mm -hmm. because we've moved from the personal to recognizing, oh, I live in a much bigger world where it's not just my life. There's hundreds of thousands of people connected to the stuff that I do, that people are more, there's more of a cultural responsibility or more of a, you, you see humanity as like a, a oneness type of responsibility. So you see, as we go from selfishness to Kali Yuga, to personal responsibility, to truly understanding what it means to be a Kshatriya or a warrior caste. And the warrior caste, that's uh, Treta Yuga. That's when you are there to defend Dharma, not dogmatically, not fanatically, not because you think you are right and everyone else is wrong, but because you actually know what is going to help this community thrive you, you see, does that make sense?
0: Mm-hmm, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I am. I am interested though, because I think that there may be some folks who are confused that there are different ways of calculating which yuga we're in, because mm-hmm. there are several philosophies or philosophical groups, religions that still consider us very much in the midst of Kali Yuga.
1: Um, Shri Advishwar's book, "The Holy Science," um, mm-hmm. he discusses. These different ideas, like for example, many people think you know, Kal goes on for millions of billions of years. Well, in a way, we can kind of think of this like uh, grand cosmic type of Yuga scheme. But there's also smaller, smaller uh, microcosms. Just like you know, we have um, the Earth goes around the Sun, uh, which makes a year. But the Earth itself turns once a once a day, and the Moon goes around. Uh, the earth, you know, every 28 days or so. So there are, there are different, there are different levels of cycle. And what I like to focus on is on this again, 24 to 26,000 year cycle, because it, it focuses on what we can experience a, a little more obviously. And so for example, I believe me, I've gotten that information a lot where people said, of course, we're in Kali Yuga because there's still war of course, we're in Kali Yuga because of this, because of that. But I would just challenge people to look around. And if you do any historical research at all, and you look at the uh, the progress that humans have made in the last 200 years, I mean, it was only like 150 years ago where someone discovered that washing your hands will stop babies from and mothers from dying when, when a doctor delivers a baby. I mean, that was only 150 years old. phone. Um, this phone, this, this thing, which is more powerful than any computer we have right here, it evolved in what, 20 years time? These are all Dwapara, yuga electrical age things. And all these discoveries began around uh, 1700. And before that, if you, if you look at how people lived, I remember I went to Scotland um, about 10, 14 years ago, and they gave us a tour of this old part of the city. And they said, and here, which is the size of this room that I'm in right now, a family of 12 lived, (laughs) you know, it's, it's rock. It's a a family of 12 lived over there is where they did their business. And once a day, they took that pot and threw it out in the street. (laughs) That's how people lived, you know, 200 years ago. So if you just look at the advancements that have been made technologically, you know, if I get a cut on my hand, am I going to die from it? No, but 300 years ago, you probably would. <laughs> it's true. I mean, if, if you really if you do some research, you will see the difference in, in the, 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 the extreme changes that we have gone through in these past uh, few hundred years. And many people, uh, they want it either or. So this is what happens. Oh, we're into a par yuga. So we should be more enlightened now. All right. Well, we are a little bit. We're starting to stand on two legs instead of one, but you know if you look at the uh, if you look at the let's see if you look at the little map here, well Kali Yuga let's see let me move this around Kali Yuga peaked around 500 AD mm-hmm. and then it stopped around 1700 AD and we're just what. One eighth of the way into Dwapara Yuga, which is just like in the morning when the sun has barely come up, is it midday? Are we are we at the full uh, extent of what Dwapara Yuga is going to give us? We're not, and so many people have this issue of of either or. They're like, we're in Dwapara Yuga. We should have spaceships. We should be on the moon. We should be able to heal people with lasers. You know all these types of things right now. And the other mistake that people make when it comes to the yugas is they project their ideals on the higher Yugas. So for example, when you have, um, uh, uh, when you are still kind of mired in Kali Yuga mentality and any of us who have been born where we are now, there's still gonna be a lot of that clinging, a lot of that hanging on that we have to shake off. That's our role, that's our duty. And um, when you're still caught in the Kali Yuga mentality, you imagine that what's the enlightened age going to look like? Well, when we get into the enlightened age, Again, everyone is going to have their own spaceship. They're going to be able to teleport f- across the universe. They're going to have all the gold. They're going to have these enlightened relationships where people can you know, enjoy whatever they want sensually. They project the Kali Yuga and even early Dwapara Yuga ideals on the higher Yugas. When really, when you get to say Satya Yuga, why is there no record of the last Satya Yuga? You know, it happened 11,500 BC. That's a long time ago. Why is there no record of it? It's because people, and this is a theory again. Remember, just a model.
0: Mm.
1: People in Satya Yuga don't need things. They didn't have computers. They didn't have all this stuff. They were living out of their consciousness, the energy of their consciousness, which we can't conceive of because we're still way the heck down here in Dwapara Yuga. So, you know, people. When I think of people who uh, who are Satya Yuga beings, I think of um, Ramana Maharshi. Yeah. But, He's He just existed, basically. And so if you have a group of Satya Yuga beings, they're walking around with their loincloth and their stick. Are they leaving around <laughs> mega cities and computers and you know all this stuff for people to find 10,000 years later? They're not, because they were so in harmony with nature that that's all they needed. Yeah. So you know, again, going back to your question about how do you answer that, it's hard to answer because if someone is of their own accord really caught up in a belief system, no matter what, you can't really talk them out of it. You can try to point to things that have changed. You can encourage them to go study history and see if they can see the difference. But when you're caught in the loop of Kali Yuga mentality, you don't wanna read about history. You don't wanna know about science. You don't wanna know about facts. You just wanna perpetuate your belief, which is very Kali Yuga-esque. So the only thing that a person can do to determine what is accurate and true again is for themselves to engage in practices like the yamas and niyamas, being good to people, telling the truth, meditating deeply, and seeing if by that practice uh, that they are able to appreciate the change. And one thing that, uh, if I can go a little bit further, if you don't mind. One thing to keep in mind is when uh, Sri Yukteswar discusses the yugas, he, he, he does point out While we can talk about the Silver Age, where there's more of an emphasis towards like energy healing and understanding telepathy and communicating with our mind, these types of things, he's very clear to point out that that's really just an idea. We can't really understand or appreciate what that yuga is like until we ourselves kind of evolve into it. Just like if you took a four-year-old and you tried to say, let me explain to you how mortgages work. You know, the, <laughs> the, the, the mortgage thing is like a Treta Yuga type of mentality. This is just an example. And a four-year-old would be like a Kali Yuga mentality. You can't really explain to a four-year-old how mortgages work unless maybe that four-year-old is, is a savant and is like, yeah, tell me all the numbers. I get it. Sometimes that happens, but that would be like a, someone born in a Kali Yuga body who actually has the capacity to understand silver age mentality. But if that doesn't happen for you, that's okay. That's why we have yoga and meditation so that we ourselves can appreciate that. But you have to want to do it. You know, People who, who want to defend that we're in Kali Yuga all the time, my general sense is they don't really want to, they just want to prove that that's the case rather than explore the possibility that it might not be the case.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, is this something that you have had a lot of conversations around? Like, is it something that comes up a lot?
1: I don't have conversations because it's usually pointless. But yeah. um, but but it, it does it does you know with my YouTube channel, you know, a lot of people kind of comment on that and um, the 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 Kriya Yoga podcast and so on. I do get a lot of people telling me these things, and all I can do is say, look, you know, practice your meditation. Go read that book, um, The Yugas by Joseph Selby. He he takes everything that we're talking about and he explains it. In such a way that, I mean, it's almost you, you can't quite. I mean, you can argue with it, I'm sure, but it's—it's it's hard. It's hard to argue the points that he makes. So, mm-hmm. so when those things come up, um, I don't find much use in in arguing or trying to to really convince someone. Uh, I prefer just say, look, here's where you can go to kind of get some insights into it and come to your own conclusion, because at the end of the day, again, we have to remember we're, in, we're, we're just out of Kali Yuga. We're in Dwapara Yuga. Many people still cling to the Kali Yuga mentality. Many people are still figuring out the Dwapara Yuga mentality. That's just where we are. So to try to argue other people into a higher state of consciousness, that never works. We ourselves have to be willing and interested to do that and when that's the case, then we start to realize things like this. And then,
0: yeah.
1: and, and then, you know, once you start to realize this, you don't really care what yuga you're in because you, rec- you recognize I have work to do on myself. And that's the most important thing.
0: Yeah. And that's what I was thinking earlier is that we were talking about how the yugas reflect collective consciousness mm-hmm. and how more or less accessible dharmic behavior is going to be collectively. Um, and then very quickly, we were like, well, for us, we have our own kind of internal yoga where we have the ability to transcend to certain states of consciousness. So really at the end of the day, what, and please correct me if I'm not seeing this like completely clearly, but understanding the you just really gives us a better expectation of what to have collectively <laughs> Like yeah. at the end of the day, that's kind of all it is, is setting us up for a healthy expectation for the world around us.
1: I think that's exactly right. And I, I kind of look at it like, um, like understanding the weather, which I think is what astrology is about anyway. You know, it's like, okay, I want to go outside and I want to work on this shed. Well, the reality of the situation is it's raining and hailing out there, but I still want to work on that shed. So if I'm going to do that, I have to know, you know, I live in this time period with this weather pattern. So I've got to get an umbrella or a tarp and I've got to put it over so that I can get this done. Whereas maybe if I was in the tretta Yugo weather pattern, it would be sunny and breezy and a perfect spring day. And I wouldn't have to go through all that, but you have to, to, to bemoan and complain about the situation it doesn't help anything. (laughs) You just have to do what you have to do.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting to think about. And one of the, one of the questions I'd plan to ask you is how can we not, and you and I had discussed this while we were planning the podcast, but, um, you know, as we move through our own lives and we're working on developing higher consciousness for ourselves. And I know a lot of people who follow my podcast and people who I talk to are also really interested in humanitarian efforts and supporting other people or supporting animals. And it's like, how can we not lose morale when in one of these yugas? Yeah. <laughs> you I know, how know. can we yeah. maintain I, hope?
1: I don't know if I have a good answer for that other than like at some point in time it becomes, you just recognize that no matter what, that's what you have to do. It's like when you're surrounded by people who are, are, are liars and difficult and cause you problems all the time, you know, you can of course just kind of say, what's the point? Why don't I just act like them? Or you just have a sense of, you know what, no matter who's around, I personally have to stand for this because it's what's important to me. Um, here in West Virginia, uh, you know, th- there's a lot of uh, emphasis towards um, fossil fuels and so on. And um, there are a few people who don't quite believe that that's necessarily the thing to focus on. Um, and they just do it because they recognize that there is a mentality that comes from a place of, 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 of fear or of trauma or of, of not, not having uh, a sense of safety in their lives. And so people are going to cling to that, which is comfortable for them. But just like if you have a child that that you're working with um, and you're an adult, you know, you, you don't start acting like the child because you're tired of being an adult. You know, there, there is a sense of, I, I have to do my best because there will be someone out there that will pay attention to this and see this and it will inspire them. And it might be that the yuga that we're in, there isn't a lot of that going on, but again, Again, I'm not. I'm not Christian, and I don't really, you know, profess Christianity and those types of things. But think about it: if 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 Jesus did what he did, and he inspired one other person to love their neighbor, or to be kind to others, or to seek peace within, well, that's that's enough, right? So it comes down to letting go of attachment. I think to uh, our own impact, like in the Bhagavad Gita, where it says, you know, the yogi is entitled to action only, not to the fruits of their action. And that is hard to swallow. I mean, I meditate on that for years. But when you recognize that, you know, you are to do this because it is the right thing to do, not dogmatically, not fanatically, but because it just, it is actually the right thing to do, then you yourself are empowered no matter what anyone else does, Mm. you know?
0: yeah i actually took a note whenever you were saying it's just like what you have to do it's that's kind of uh the definition of dharma you know Mm -hmm. it's just like doing your duty and and paying attention to the action itself like you were mentioning instead of the desired outcome um and one of the other things that i think about me and my friend kaylee have contemplated this together is just this idea of alleviating suffering like if we are on this planet for a finite amount of time if we're really trying to think of the meaning of life, for me, I think all of us will come to different conclusions about this. But for me, one of the things that seems to make the most sense is to try to make existence easier for those who are less fortunate or who don't have um, as many privileges or resources or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. Um, And so even if we don't change the entire world, we could totally change reality for at least a few beings in our lifetime, which is their entire world. And so I think that that's for me, that's enough motivation, but I just, I wanted to hear your thoughts on it too. And I think that having reminders from the Bhagavad Gita is always going to be uh, the superior answer.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, it always comes back to recognizing that we are all, we are all actually in this together. And so, you know, to, to see uh, another suffering and to do what you can to alleviate it, that is important. Um, the, the the difficulty that arises again comes back to psychological uh, well being is that many people and um, you know before I was an astrologer also while I was an astrologer you know I I studied and practiced Ayurveda and massage and craniosacral therapy and Reiki and it goes on and on and I was into all that stuff and I taught it and what I often saw was that people who got involved in that weren't doing it because it was their dharma they were doing it because they felt bad and they were trying to make themselves feel better by making other people feel better. And this, mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't feel like I'm really describing this, but it's like a person, it's like a, maybe a person who studies psychology, not because they have a profound interest in psychology and a skill helping others psycho- psychologically, but they go into it because they really want to understand themselves. Yeah. Right. And we see this, you know, we can tie this into the, the caste system and the yugas as well, because mm-hmm. for example, like to be a doctor, uh, to be a doctor, the, the real motivation behind a, behind a doctor is to be of service, and is to be of someone who is actually interested in doing the things that doctors do. That's the Satvic approach of being a doctor. But what do most people do? Oh, how many hundreds of thousands of dollars a year can I make being a doctor? What kind of prestige is this going to give me? You know, the, or um, or they have their own self esteem issues, and it's a way to boost their own self esteem. So they move into a role that they're not really suited for because of these other uh, motivations. And so therefore it's not Sattvic. And so therefore it actually might not really be helpful ultimately in the long run. So when we think about this idea of, of helping others, my sense is always this. If you have the abilities, the skills, and the Sattvic interest, and by Sattvic I mean you would just do it for no reason. You're not doing it because you're coming from a self-esteem problem. You're not doing it because you're coming from a psychological wound. You're not doing it because you want to feel better about yourself, but because you really feel that that, that you have the skill and you have the ability to to support this. Well, if you come at helping the planet in that way, you're going to have a much greater impact. Just like with Ramana Maharshi, people would ask him, why wasn't he like Gandhi and more involved politically, and more involved in in those kinds of things. And he would say, well, how do you know I'm not helping the world by simply embodying this this clear state of consciousness? And also he knew that wasn't his role or his dharma to get involved in those kinds of things. So we're kind of going off topic here, but really what I'd like to encourage people to recognize is that the way you serve the world and help the world is by being very clear on what your skills, your capabilities are, and what you can do that you would give freely. You you know, not, not for any other reason, you would just do it because. That's a sattvic reason for doing it. And maybe you like working on cars. Well, you know what? You and I, we need cars so that we can get back and forth to retreats and teaching classes so that we can do stuff like this to reach more people. So even a mechanic who's working on your car, She's getting paid, she's getting paid, sure. But if she's doing it out of the love of of fixing vehicles to support people who can't do it themselves, that in and of itself is profound service to the world. So I just like to encourage people to kind of erase this idea of selfless, uh, I don't know even how you would describe it, but this general idea of service and try to look at it more from the point that I'm describing. Do you follow what I'm saying here?
0: I totally follow what you're saying. And I actually I come into contact a lot with this because I think that for me, a lot of the people who I've worked with, sometimes they they can um, lose sight of how much impact they are making with what they're doing with their skill set. And I think that sometimes we as humans can get hung up on if we're not on the front lines, social working, that we're not helping people. If we're not like at the food pantry, we're not helping people. Or it's like, we have this like idea of what service and support looks like, but you know, um, what you're suggesting is that there are so many roles in society that are absolutely imperative to keep it functioning and to keep everyone happy. I mean, I've gone to a mechanic more times than I can count. Definitely need mechanics. And it's also like people who own bakeries, people who are artists and make the world more beautiful with their music and their movies and whatever. I mean, movies can completely shift how people view reality. And so there are so many different, amazing ways to serve and support. But that's really what I was suggesting earlier in that we can alleviate suffering in in a myriad of ways, um, so long as we're focusing on our craft, as you were saying, as a service and, yeah. and from that perception of sattva.
1: Right, right. And that's why, you know, I understand this idea that, that you're just describing is so important because when you bring in that sense of, of sattvic uh, mentality to everything that you do, it doesn't matter what you do, it's going to be of help and support to consciousness, you know, if you do something again out of the sense of, of Rajas or Thomas, you know, trying to get away from pain or trying to make yourself better, every time you do that, you are just contributing to more difficulty for yourself and for others in the world. That's why Sat sattva, the Satya yuga, that is that is the most important thing, and it's mm-hmm. the hardest it's the hardest thing to grasp because our society puts all these ideas on what Sat what truth is supposed to be like. And that's why we have to really dig down ourselves to figure out what it is (laughs) to, to access it ourselves.
0: Yeah. And I think that sometimes we can like waver in and out of a sattvic space. Like some days we're going to be super in our, you know, sattva and doing things from that place of service to support other people. And then other days we may be from a place of rajas where there's like something that we really want, or we're like super focused on a goal, but the practice is just kind of like returning and reminding ourselves to kind of come back to that, space.
1: Yeah. And you know, internal yoga. Yeah. And one of the things that I learned uh, from David Frawley about this idea of the gunas is this, is that, you know, if you are caught up in a tamasic energy, well, you need some rajas. You know, if if all you're doing is sitting on the couch eating Cheetos and watching, you know, Netflix all day, well, you need some rajas to say, I need to make myself better. I need to get up and exercise. And then you get up and you get stronger. And now you can get caught up in rajas. We're like, let's make myself even better. You know, let, let, me, let me lift the next heavier kettlebell. Or you can say, I'm at a good place. Now I have the strength and the energy that I can contribute in a sattvic way. So, you know, we don't, I'm not trying to say Rajas and Thomas are bad. They, they have their place. Um, but, you know, even in yoga, the, the ideal is to move into that sattvic place. And you can do rajasic things sattvicly. You know, when I sit down and I, I play a musical instrument and I'm trying to get better, well, trying to get better as a rajasic motivation, but I don't come at it from the, if I don't get better, I'm a bad person. I come at it as I'm going to try to get better here, but you know what? I'm going to love the process while it's happening, whether it works or not. So you can see, you can even bring uh sattvic motivation or, or the satt yuga into rajasic things. And that's uh, yeah. important to remember.
0: Wow, that's really beautiful. Thank you. And something that I always, something that my teacher reminds me of is that we're not supposed to be attached to any of the gunas anyway. So it's like we're not supposed to be attached to Sattva, to sattva guna anyway. We we can't have an attachment to goodness because sometimes our dharma is to be angry and aggressive, depending right. on right. on what the circumstances. And so he's like, "You're you're being too attached." I'm like, "I think that feeding animals will always be good." <laughs> and then he gives me this like long seminar on why having that attachment could be detrimental. And I was like, I have a lot to think about. <laughs> <laughs>
1: for
0: sure. I was like, I seriously, I was like arguing with my teacher. I was like, I don't see how serving animals could ever be a bad thing, but yeah. he's, you know, we can't, we can't be attached because sometimes we can't, we can't be, we can't operate in that mode of existence all the time because in this material reality, the three modes exist so that we can kind of fluctuate between them. And, and Dharma is going to call on different, modes in terms of tamas rajasapa etc but at the end of the day with spiritual practice we're not we're supposed to be more attached to dharma and and that spiritual compass than we are intended to be to the gunas i just wanted to kind of clarify what i was saying
1: no that makes sense Mm -hmm.
0: thank you for being patient with that but i know (laughs) i know we're kind of running out of time um i suppose just to wrap up on the basis of Um, this podcast being about the yugas and how it's what we can expect with collective consciousness. Just what are some, what are like four takeaways with the yuga that we're in that people can expect in the world around us?
1: Yeah, well, so Dwapara Yuga is considered to be the electric age. When we start to discover fine electricities, which is why we are able to have this conversation and thousands of people are able to listen to it all over the world within an instant Mm -hmm. because we have developed this this, this advancement in science. So the electric age, there's a profound advancement in science as with all things, as we get in advancements, we have to learn to use them responsibly instead of being the person who's spending, you know, hours a day scrolling through Facebook and and Instagram or whatever, like that's the wrong use. (laughs) That's the wrong use of it. Getting an instant pot. Now that's the right use of it. Because if you get an Instant Pot, you can cook meals in like 15 minutes, which means you've got an extra 45 minutes to go meditate or study or exercise. So, the, the important thing with the, the uh, Dvapara Yuga is to recognize that yes, technology is important, but we have to learn to direct it to the support of our, 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 our well being, not to our detriment. Um, the other side of it is the idea of personal responsibility. In Kali Yuga, like I said, there was the herd mentality. When we think about how surely people in the 1100s really wanted to have all this freedom and do that and so on, but we don't know because we're not in that yuga. More than likely, they didn't even think that way because it wasn't a concept that they even had. But in the Dwapara yuga, it's more about the rights of the individual, which is why now we have women's rights. We have rights for people of different races and colors and ethnicities. Of course, it's struggling, but it's still more than there was even 75 years ago, if you think about it. Um, We have personal rights. We have laws that protect us from many different things. So we want to use the ability to to grow personally without making everything about the personality. (laughs) So it's about learning to develop our unique expression of this infinite consciousness, this infinite soul, this infinite spirit, while trying to avoid, oh, it would be really great if I just became a macro-influencer. Well, why do you want to be a macro-influencer? Is it, again, because of the, the, the fame, the prestige, or the money? Well, that's not the reason to do it. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, overall, I think the main thing to focus on is... Um, using technology appropriately, not to destroy your life, but to actually support, to give you more time. And this is the thing I always tell my students. If you understand how much time email saves, how much time this stuff saves, how much time uh, an oven saves, being able to go to the store and buy food that you didn't have to grow, spend all this time digging the garden and so on. We have so much time now if we would just claim it because of technology. That's the important use of, of being in the Dwapara Yuga. And of course, um, using your own unique skills and talents for the betterment of your own spiritual growth, and also for the support of the culture in which you're, you're in rather than selfishly.
0: Yeah.
1: That's not four, well, that's I, two, but that's all I got.
0: <laughs> well, I appreciate it. I think that it's super, super helpful. And this has been such a an interesting and eye-opening conversation. It gives me a lot to contemplate. And thank you so much for sharing your time and getting on Zoom with me, utilizing technology to help people. Exactly. And, um, and I'm sure I'll be seeing you soon for some future podcasts. And again, just thank you so much for your time.
1: Yes. Well, next we're doing the retrograde planets, right?
0: Yes. Okay. <laughs> Which was supposed right. to happen today. Yes.
1: But, but we'll do yeah. it. We'll do it soon
0: good well i'm looking forward to it. it's interesting that we can't make the retrograde happen during mercury retrograde i'll ask you about that the next time i see you
1: <laughs> don't get me started i'm going to find, I'm gonna, I'm gonna find out i'm going to find out when retrograde is the most retrograde and that's when we're going to do the podcast
0: okay I, i'm looking forward to it let's do it okay okay all right ryan thank you
1: peace Bye.